Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rainy day. We thank you that your rain falls on the just and unjust alike. And Lord, we thank you especially that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, by your grace through faith, we are all counted just. And we just pray that as we continue looking at these doctrines and and not just seeing them as uh, dry doctrines or teachings or talking points, but rather as uh, wonderful words of life and encouragement and comfort for us, that you would fill us with a desire more and more to serve you, to worship you, and to, to serve you not out of a sense of trying to earn your love, but Lord, out of thanks that you have freely given it to us. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we were just about done with question 32, what is justification? Um, we've started a little series of, what, the fruit of effectual calling? Is that what question 31 asks? Weirdly, I don't have a catechism in front of me. Benefits. What are the benefits of, yes, the benefits of the effectual calling? Um, so, like, you meet with HR, and they're like, well, here's what you get. And the first one is, what is that, sacrilegious? You kind of nodded or shook your head, like... <laughs> All right, the first one was justification, um, and we said that a key word to understanding justification is imputation. For the people who might not have been here last week, somebody tell us, what is imputation? A transfer from one individual to another. Right, so our sin was transferred legally and really to Jesus, who then became sin for us, having never sinned, and having been in every way tempted raw deal for him, but he came willingly, and then his righteousness was transferred, credited, imputed to us, so that when God the Father looked at Christ on the cross, he saw our sin, and we see the, the ultimate cost of our sin, the rift, even within the unbreakable ties of the, the triune Godhead, and when God looks at us forevermore, after the once-for-all sacrifice, he sees not your sin, Sean's sin, Richard's sin, Steve's sin, Kim's, Kim's sin, um, but he doesn't even see it. He sees Christ's righteousness. So he also, so he doesn't just see a blank slate either. It's not just that in justification, he gets out the eraser and gets rid of our sin. More than that, our sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to the law, imputed to us so that we don't just have innocence like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We have positive righteousness of Christ. Yes? I know you want to probably go on to the next question, but... No, we have a little more here. Um, so it's so hard to conceive of God looking at us and not seeing our sin. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean... We see it, we feel guilty, so we assume that, that God is feeling a certain way toward us. And um, I think that you, you grow up thinking, you know, God's watching you, you know, that sort of thing. It, it's just really hard to... Is that what you it. heard in your Lutheran church? No, I didn't hear that, but I mean, like, you, you, you kind of see that in culture, like the idea that there's, you know, a checklist of, mm -hmm. you know... Well, and God is watching you. Santa's and I think if I ever am like, you know, uh, even though I'm in my 40s, another tattoo in a you know, place that, that 
is regularly invisible uh, would be a fun idea. The all-seeing eye of God is a very cool Christian symbol. Um, you know, within the Trinity uh, symbol, the, the reminder, God is always watching. In fact, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been putting a bunch of stickers on the back of my car because every car in the world looks exactly like mine, including Sean's. Um, and so you go out into a parking lot, and you're like, which one is mine? So I put like a thousand stickers on the back and I bought this one that <laughs> it was, it's like Jesus, like peeking around a corner. And it seemed funny to me on the website when I bought it and then I got it and I'm like, this looks like people are going to think I'm being sacrilegious. And so I, so I put it inside the car on my windshield. Little reminder, this is the time when I'm most likely to sin is when I am behind the wheel. Absolutely hands down. Um, and so there is this sense in which God does see our sin, but, and, and he can't forget it. He can't, he can't say, I don't know it because God is omniscient. I mean, I don't want to say he can't. He won't because it's inconsistent with his nature and who he has revealed himself to be. But when you think in these categories, even when God is using anthropomorphic or anthropopathic language in the Old Testament, the people are in Egypt, right? They're crying out to him for a hundred years of slavery, right? And probably before that, as things were getting bad, they're crying out to him, crying out to him. And then we read at the beginning of Exodus, then God heard their cries and remembered his covenant. And you go, wait, he forgot his covenant? No, no, no. The word means he called it to mind. And so when we think about remembering or forgetting, it, it's within our own heads, when we're thinking about forgiving someone, forgive and forget. Well, I cannot forget what they did to me. It upended my life. Well, choose not to call it to mind in that way. Uh, in the same way, God the Father, because of Jesus' sacrifice, does not call to mind our sins when he looks at us, but instead calls to mind Christ's righteousness because it has been credited to us and he's just. And so, yeah, someone has paid the bill. And so it's not like you look at it and go, oh, you never owed any money. You say, no, your balance is, well, I guess if we're talking in uh, righteousness terms, positive infinity because you're righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And, and I think I'm in danger of repeating something I said last year, but there was a chart in a local church where I went for a, a funeral one time saying that uh, negative 10 to positive 10. And it was trying to show like the, the growth of a believer, like how when you're a sinner, you're like a negative 10. When you come to faith, you become a zero. God made you a zero. That's what he died to do. And then you start by your own kind of power and righteousness walking into that positive territory. That, as a borderline blasphemous, if you ask me. No, Christ's righteousness imputed to us makes us in God's eyes the plus 10 or the plus infinity. We couldn't be more righteous in God's eyes if we are justified. And yeah, it is, it is, I think the reason it's so hard often to think in those terms is because the enemy wants nothing more than for us not to think in those terms. We are distracted by all sorts of sub-issues and things, but at the end of the day, that would be the enemy's preference. If I could just get people to not think of their salvation as done, finished, a finished work of Christ, but rather something that's kind of still in their hands and they're spinning their wheels trying to keep ahead well, then this whole gospel won't spread and people won't love their neighbors and it'll, you know, everyone will be obsessed with me all the time. So we're going to get into sanctification, but you, you don't ever look more righteous.
because you were becoming more sanctified. Right. Right. In, in, in that legal sense. Now, your sanctification, well, no, let's not jump ahead. Yeah, you're right. Um, so, only the righteousness of Christ we talked about, received by faith alone. I think that's the, the last little uh, clause uh, or phrase in that uh, we didn't talk about. Faith alone is a, one of the five solas, which were the battle cries of the Reformation. Can anyone come up with any of the others? Sola Scriptura, right? Rather than uh, believing in the Scripture and tradition, the Scripture and papal bulls and canons and all these things. Did you say something? Sola Fide, that's this one, faith alone. I think before you say Sola Fide, you've got to say Sola Gratia, gratia, which is grace alone, faith alone. There's two more. Again, a Lutheran, guys. They, they, she didn't leave them. They kicked her out. <laughs> Soli Deo Gloria, yep. Solus Christus. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, to the glory of God alone. And how do we know about this? Well, what we know for sure matters of faith and doctrine by Scripture alone. Not Scripture naked, not just Scripture, only Scripture but scripture alone as the final authority. So faith alone then becomes kind of shorthand for all of that in a lot of circles. But I want you to notice that if you power up your Bible Gateway website or your Logos Bible software or something, Sean, you still using that stuff? I just got a new computer and I haven't been able to find a disk to transfer it over. Oh, to the I hope you do. That's good stuff. If you don't, Maybe check out um, Olive Tree. It's really cheap and really good. Um, But uh, you type in faith alone. Look for that phrase. Because even though we are saved by grace through faith, faith that is saving faith is never alone. In fact, in a couple translations, the one place you will find that phrase. Right, where is that? James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, which is, you know, all sorts of panic attacks for Protestants. Let's just take a minute and talk about it since we opened the can of worms. What on earth does that mean? When I, when I preached through James, which was one of my favorite books to, to study, um, I think I named this sermon. I used to put a lot of thought into what I named the sermons, trying to be clever. Uh, faith alone, in parentheses, but not alone. Um, we're, yeah. It's kind of like, um, no, that doesn't work. Well, you're not justified by works alone, but the point that he was making was that you're not justified without works. And because you your faith you will, will manifest, yeah, a true faith manifests itself. Right, so there is a kind of faith, mental assent, a I believe in this that doesn't have any bearing on you. That is just that, mental. It's in your head, it's ethereal, and it isn't evidence that you've been born again because otherwise it would begin to bear fruit in your life. So faith, you're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone, is how the kind of cutesy little phrase goes. And so faith alone isn't wrong here, but I would put an asterisk and put, but never alone. Your faith will be accompanied by works. It's not the works that save you, 
But the, what James is doing here is making a distinction between the kind of quote-unquote faith that even the demons have. You believe there's one God? Big deal. Even the demons believe, and they have a response. They shudder. You believe in God, and then go about your life as if there is no God. So it's not really, it's not really faith. That's not the kind of faith that saves. Um, writing about the revival in New England, Jonathan Edwards credited the right teaching of justification. Quote, at that time, while I was greatly reproached for defending this doctrine in the pulpit, and just upon my suffering a very open abuse for it, God's work wonderfully broke forth among us, and souls began to flock to Christ as the Savior in whose righteousness alone they hoped to be justified. So this was the doctrine on which this work, in its beginning, was founded, as it evidently was in the whole progress of it. That was the key, he believes, to the Great Awakening. Uh, and I think he's got to be right. Finally, I would say the, the main, today, the main caution when talking about justification is less whether your faith alone is accompanied by works. There's a great emphasis on works today in the church, but whether it's you who are justified or your sins which are justified. The biblical doctrine is the former. You are just, your sins are still as filthy and horrible as, as they ever were. In fact, maybe they're even worse now that they've been meted out on the back of the spotless Lamb of God. Your sins aren't justified. And that confusion does come in sometimes. Well, yeah, I'm living in blatant sin, but, you know, my sins have been justified. It's kind of, it's not usually put that way, but it's kind of the subtext. No, you've been justified, which means now you ought to hate your sin all the more. And that is uh, another, another caution, I think, when we look at justification. So let's move on to adoption. Number 33. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. On the evening of December 9, 1710, while Thomas Boston was walking up and down in his study in heaviness, his little daughter Jane, whom he had laid in bed, suddenly raising herself up, called to him and thus expressed herself. Mary Magdalene went to the sepulcher. She went back again with them to the sepulcher, but they would not believe that Christ had risen till Mary Magdalene met him. And he said to her, tell my brethren, they are my brethren yet. This is a little girl. <laughs> this, says Boston, she pronounced with a certain air of sweetness. It took me by the heart. His brethren yet, thought I. And may I think that Christ will own me as one of his brethren yet? It was to me as life from the dead. So he was in heaviness seemingly because of his sin or lack of progress with his, his sanctification or his spiritual life. And his little daughter had grabbed onto and was thinking about these two words from the scripture, uh, which is probably a great testament to how they were raising her. That that's what she's thinking on. His brethren yet. Go tell them, yeah, he's, he's still your brother. And that is a, a beautiful thing. So I think a, a good place to start would be to ask the question, 
As far as the practical concerns go and the effect of it, what is the difference between justification and adoption? Well, if you're justified in a courtroom setting, that doesn't mean that you go home with the person to their house and live with them and have that would be unorthodox. Them every night and mm -hmm. okay. you know, hang out with the judge. Everyone just agrees with Aaron. And as it, practically in our lives as Christians, not in the um, constituent metaphors, what is the difference between thinking about how I'm justified and how I'm adopted? Well, you could be individually justified, but you're adopted into a family. So I think that talks a, a little bit about that you're not, this isn't a solo thing. Like you're adopted into a family and family's the church. Like that's the body of Christ. And so you're not doing it alone. Okay. Like that. Adoption is the taking of a stranger into a family and dealing with him or her as if they were a child or an heir, a biological child or an heir, or an act whereby a man takes into his family one who was not originally a member of it and gives him the standing and privileges of a son. Now we have here, again, Adoption is an act, right? An act. And we've been making that distinction between a work of God and an act of God. Somebody briefly remind us of the distinction. There's something that's kind of playing out over time. Okay. The act is a... Right. Once. So my picture had been asking Kelvin, did you clean your room? Yeah, I got started. Okay. Asking Kelvin, did you remember to turn off your lights? Either you did or you didn't. That's an act. You can't be like, oh yeah, the switch is halfway down. I'm going to get to the rest of it later. No, the lights are on or they're not. So one is a work, one is an act. Justification, we, we said last week, it's very important to remember it is an act. It has been portrayed as and understood as a work by some uh, traditions. And I think that is the core of our difference with those traditions, uh, that understanding the idea of becoming righteous in God's sight is kind of this synergistic work that God and I do together rather than something, I mean, good grief. It, it, another way to talk about it is being raised from the dead. Dead people don't help them, themselves get raised from the dead. A little more work and I'll be raised. Well, no, you can't do any work because you're dead. So yeah, the, the idea of this being uh, a act and not a work emphasizes, first of all, that it, we are the objects of it, not the agents of it or the co-agents of it, and that it is done. Now, in our world, human adoption can be partially done, right? There are those situations. I know people who have uh, foster kids in their house and they're partway through the process, or my buddy Ted went overseas a couple times and they had to stay for three months because, oh, we think we've adopted this kid. And then, oh, look, uh, here comes, you know, Vladimir with 19 more forms to fill out and look we owe 20,000 more dollars like that like it's in flux But that's not the case here, and I, I don't know Aaron, you know stuff was that the case in Rome? I imagine it was a, a Pretty cut-and-dried thing Fum, you are now the son or daughter of this other individual uh, someone flip over to Jeremiah 3 and Look at one verse verse 19 
Why are you so into emperors? Do you wish I was more powerful? I do. Um, Jeremiah, what? 319. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, and I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from, my, from following me. And that's all the way back in the major prophets. There is, throughout the Old Testament, this theme of God counting Israel as one of his children adopting Israel uh, and even here that you would call me my father and then of course way later when Jesus says this is how you should pray our father people are like whoa should we even be able to talk that way well, yeah go back to the prophets that's what God wanted that's the relationship he wanted uh, from the beginning and so there is there's an intimacy to it and it is something that's uniquely complete for us in Christ but it was God's intent from the very beginning. In fact, when you read in Luke the lineage of Jesus, it goes back all the way to Adam, and then it says, and Adam's father was God. If you look on his birth certificate, that's what it says, God. Um, and so God is, in essence, our father from the very beginning, um, and yet there is something that must happen at justification or as the benefit of effectual calling. Uh, Romans 8.23, we read this, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so if we're talking about an act and something that has happened already, what are we waiting eagerly for? When it says we're waiting for our adoption as sons. And why are we waiting? How, how is there a sense in which we're already adopted and yet we're not yet fully adopted? It is a good question. The answer you might find in 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. Was he talking about before you believe? No, that's a oh, present active indicative here. We are waiting okay. eagerly. Three verses one and two. Someone shout that out nice and loud. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, He shall be like We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So waiting for the adoption of sons and redemption of our bodies, what we're waiting for is the moment, that happy moment, when we see him, see our father. We know now that he's, the paperwork is filed, to push the metaphor, uh, the legal standing has changed, but there's still something we anticipate, you know, running into the arms of your, your father. Uh, and so here we read about, uh, yes, we're children of God now, and, not but, but and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. That is the completion. 
instead of an act? No, uh, what we see here is an act that is then consummated in a sense. Um, so just like, in a sense, justification, which says you are righteous in God's eyes, will be uh, kind of consummated and uh, finalized in your glorification when whatever sin remains in you is burned out of you in a moment. Uh, in the same way, your adoption as a son or daughter, when you see him and become like him, that will be kind of the uh, validation of it, the, the completion of it. Uh, and so Thomas Goodwin called this doctrine adoptio imperfecta, which obviously just means imperfect doctrine. Get over your, I mean, uh, adoption. Um, so it's basically I, the idea that we are adopted now. We are the sons and daughters of God now, but we're still, we're longing for, we're waiting for, we're groaning for that time when we're with him. And that propels us in our spiritual lives to walk toward him. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea that we have to be adopted is these days very unpopular. Everybody thinks of it as a truism that we're all God's children, right? You hear that all the time, especially when it's non-religious people talking to the religious people and trying to you know, make a point. Well, aren't we all God's children? No, we're not. Well, how can that be? If Adam's father was God and we're all children of Adam, what's, what's happened? Why in John 1.12 do we read, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Shouldn't everyone already have that right by virtue of having been created by God? What changes in the fall? Yeah, the whole relationship changes. Okay. So Adam was God's son. God was his father, but he was he cast out. I mean, <laughs> okay. Great son. And so, who's our father now? The devil. Oh, good grief! She is Lutheran. <laughs> the, the, the devil. Now, this relates, I think, to um, the doctrine of Christus Victor, which is a way of viewing the atonement, where Jesus comes to defeat Satan and steal back what is his, uh, which only makes sense if you first understand substitutionary atonement as the main uh, thing that is accomplished, that Jesus came to die in our place. But in doing so, he steals back those who are his. Uh, and we see this throughout the New Testament. Someone flip over to John 8 and someone else to Ephesians 2. Someone read John 8, 37 to 47. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and do you do what you have heard from your father? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing works, the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Whoa. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What a, what a teddy bear, this guy. Uh, how about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? I love the next line. What is it? The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Are we not right? Yes, wait, no. <laughs> 1 through 3. I like how you're using Ollie's old action Bible. It's hard to flip through the pages. It's super fun, though. It's got cartoons and comic books and ninja angels and everything. I have one myself. Um, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So... It's not a small group that Jesus is talking to. You people are so bad that you're like your father, the devil. Mankind, following after the prince of the air, the god of this world, Satan, doing his stuff, which is always gratifying the desires of the mind and the flesh, and in doing so, re-emphasizing and reaffirming who we choose to be sons of and daughters of again and again, in the passions of the flesh, and are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. It's not something that you opt into. By nature, you are. And we have already talked about Adam as our federal head having sinned, and us then having inherited the guilt of his sin. And if that doesn't sound fair, it's going to sound super unfair when you realize that Jesus took your sin unto himself, and so by nature, that is what we were. So we didn't just need to be justified. We also needed to be adopted back into the family we were originally intended to belong to. And that's a beautiful story. Just like the prodigal son. Yeah, walking away from the father, really accepting your inheritance while dad's still alive is basically saying you're dead to me. Going off and living after the passions of the flesh, coming to the end of himself. That's the best story. Oh my gosh, I can't read that without crying. I can talk about it though right now without getting choked up, I bet. And then, yeah, he's eating the pig pods, the carob pods, which you could live on, but I mean, it's basically like the equivalent of like, you know, you hear stories about elderly people not getting enough social security and they eat cat food or something and it breaks your heart. It's that, it's, it's, it's barely living and going, wait a minute, servants, slaves in my father's house live way better than this. Heading back home, probably the whole time, reciting in his head the speech that he came up with, right? Look, Dad, I know that, blah, blah, blah. And what happens? He gets zero words into his speech. And his dad is like, shut up. You had me at coming back up the road wearing rags and, you know, thinking of yourself as my servant. Runs, which no self-respecting man would do in that culture. And 
embraces him, kill the fatted calf, get me a robe, get me a ring, we're having a party. You're my son. My son was dead and now he's alive again. And that's such a like vital part of understanding our salvation. Because we are effectually called, not only are we justified, this, okay, God looks at us and we're not to be punished, we're adopted. God looks at us and if you have kids, you know, you see your kids and usually, unless they're in the middle of some really squirrely stuff, you're filled with wonderful feelings. I've got a picture of Calvin in my study from when he was a few years younger and he's got the goofiest smile on his face. Once a week, I look at that, and I'll just look at it for a minute and think, oh, good grief, that's my son. That's so wonderful. We are the sons and daughters of God. And this is, in every culture and every place, an expensive process. My friend who went to Ukraine twice, whoa. We had a, uh, a big fundraiser-type thing at University Reformed Church to try and get money uh, for them. And, and it was I couldn't believe when they went through a slideshow of all the expense involved. I was just like, wow. It's expensive no matter how you do it. And it was an expensive thing, and God paid the price. So then, when you read Galatians 3.26, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. How do we understand this? Is it our faith that makes us the children of God? Or is it the work of Christ on the cross? Well, our faith is a gift anyway. Okay. One, if I say you were not the son of God, you were the son of the devil, and now you're the son of God, what was the thing? If it's God's work, he gets the glory. If it's your work, you get the glory. Well, the thing that made it possible was the cross. Right. I think this breaks down into categories that you want to jot down and then never think about again. There are different kinds of causes. And the reason it's important to break these things down is because, like you said, faith we find in ourselves, but we didn't put it there. The meritorious cause of our adoption is God's grace, Christ's obedience, his death and resurrection. The instrumental cause is our faith. So the instrument, like if you're going to open a lock, your, your house is locked, or better yet, my office is locked, right? This has never happened, but my office is locked, my keys are inside, and I say, Richard, come unlock my office for me. And he gets out his keys. And he, I, I don't say to people, whew, Richard's key let me in. I say, I'm glad Richard was still here. He let me in. The instrument he used was the key. That was the instrumental cause, but it was Richard doing the act. And when we talk about justification, when we talk about adoption, it's God's grace, which is doing the act, and it's our faith, which, as Aaron said, is a gift from him anyway, that he uses as the instrument to do it. He chooses to, to work in that way. So we were far off from God. We were at odds with him. It, people will often try and tell their story in, in a way where they're cozy with him from the very beginning. And everyone doesn't need to have this big testimony where they were, you know, like, 
about to jump off a bridge or they were addicted to heroin or, or they were part of a coven or whatever. And then suddenly, I mean, the, praise God for those stories, but everyone doesn't need one. But everyone does need to recognize that their story starts with them being at enmity with God, meaning being enemies of God. From the cradle, man. I mean, you start saying, wait a minute, what about old enough to reject the wrong and choose right? Okay. But from as soon as you could express the sin nature within you, you were at enmity with God. And that is part of the miracle. If, if you were, you know, this sad little street urchin, <laughs> buy me last pape, homeless, sad, I need a, and God said, oh, look at you and picked you up and brought you home. That's one thing, right? Compassion, we all have that. But if we're pelting eggs at him and rocks and giving him the finger and he still says, I want you as my son, that's something entirely different. That's agape love. That's not just the regular heartstrings type stuff. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you start cataloging all of the New Testament passages that reference adoption with, with or without saying the word adopt, it's insane how long it is. This notion, like Aaron mentioned, of being saved into a family, not just I'm taken care of as an isolated individual, permeates the New Testament. And so we're now members of the household of God. The church is the family of God. We should be... Uh, visible to the world to have these family traits. You know, you, it's funny to me how I know people who are adopted where every little tick, every little um, idiosyncrasy is from mom or dad, adopted mom or dad. I mean, like, you're like, whoa, they even kind of can start to look like them. Uh, when we talk about nature versus nurture, nature is objects of wrath. Nurture is, we've been saved now with a new nature, we more and more look like our father. You know when you see someone walking and you're like, that guy's walking just like, right? You, you see like a young man or you, you have the gait of your dad, you know, you walk in the same way. This is the kind of thing that, that adoption reminds us, scripture uh, describes and if we're truly saved, it's required. So let me ask three questions by way of closing, and then we'll have a little bit more to talk about the, the real fun and fuzzy stuff about adoption next week. Um, and this being one of the benefits of the effectual call, we're then going to, in true inception uh, manner, ask what are the privileges of being adopted? And then we'll ask what are the fruit of each of the... I'm just kidding. We're not going to go any deeper than that. Uh, but here are the three questions. What does the father do in adoption? And you probably already have your Bible open to Ephesians 1, 5, because we were looking at Ephesians 2, so you can cheat and read it. 1, 5? Mm-hmm. Chooses the child. The word used in the ESV in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Right? And I think... If 80s sitcoms taught me anything, it's that adopted kids always go through a crisis where they're like, am I really your child? I now know that I was adopted and someone at school made fun of me or something. And the parent says, this is even more amazing than if you were my 
birth child because I chose you, right? Well, God chose us, and he did so from before the foundation of the world, and he chose us before we were anything to be chosen. Um, there was a, a series on Amazon Prime, Aaron and I watched, where the whole, uh, whole episode of it was these people go to Russia. Russia? Or, or some break off Soviet Republic, I don't know. And they're adopting a baby, and they realize this baby has like fetal alcohol syndrome. It's not crying, not playing, not... And the, the whole thing is, do we take this baby, which is not, you know, like the prize baby, home? It, th th so this isn't, this isn't the perfect baby we envisioned or were promised. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to say, no, we want a better baby? Or are we going to take this baby and, and love this baby and give this baby a, a loving home? And God looked down at us and chose us, not the perfect child. Uh, you know, the perfect child isn't choosing to leave your family and realign with your sworn enemy and work against what you're, you created that child to do. I mean, th this, is, this is wild that God chose us. So many people see election as this, this weird doctrine that, that makes everything seem meaningless. Like, well, does anything matter if God... This, this is the most comforting thing in the world. God chose you, not because of anything in you, but because of who he is. Uh, what does the sun do? I've got two verses here. Someone go to John 1, 12 to 13. Read it to yourself and tell us what the sun does in adoption. And someone else go to Galatians 4, 4 to 5. So John 1, 12 to 13, and Galatians 4, 4 to 5. And when you discover the answer of what the sun does in adoption, just shout it out. Galatians is redeemed, redeemed those who were under the law. Okay. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So, cleared the way by redeeming us. Without justification, there isn't adoption. And in John 1, 12 to 13, we read, But to all who did receive him, who, received, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who's the he there? It's Jesus who gives you the right, when you believe in him, to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus speaks of us being born again. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. And what does the Spirit do? Uh, flip to Romans 8, 15, and 16. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit bears witness with our spirits. Does that mean like convinces us? Yeah, well, yeah, bears witness, testifies to us, with us, that we belong to him. And you know, the idea of the Spirit being called the Spirit of adoption probably also uh, ties the Spirit more closely to the work. Uh, the actual work, the, the bearing witness with us is after the fact. But all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our justification, are involved in our adoption as sons and daughters. And the Spirit then bears witness. And that, those words, Abba, Father, mean very little to most people. But that would have been a very 
very radical idea uh, in the religious atmosphere of the day uh, because Abba is not, I mean, to call uh, God Father was probably a bit uh, controversial. Abba is like what a little child would call you know, Abba and Ima. You'd hear from a little kid. Uh, it's, a, it's a real intimate term. And because we have this adoption and the Spirit is bearing witness to it, we're emboldened to call the creator of a billion universes dad. That's amazing. And yes, it's an important doctrine of the faith, but way more than that, it ought to be the center of how we view ourselves and how we live our lives. I want to make my dad proud. I've, I don't have to earn his love. I already have it. But I really, really want him to look down and see me following in his footsteps. Uh, and that is uh, adoption. We're going to talk about a little more of that next week and then get into sanctification. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this question. What is adoption? And the answer, which is so much deeper uh, than we could get into and so much less academic than, than what it sounds like in a catechism, Lord, that it's, it really is us who were separated from you in that situation that so many of us have been in where a relationship has been broken and we're powerless to fix it. You choosing to reach out and embrace us all the same, to love us, to call us your sons and daughters, to let us call you Abba. What a wonderful blessing, unspeakable blessing that is. Lord, we pray that we would live this week as your servants and your sons and daughters, uh, calling you Abba, looking to you for everything we need, and Lord, wanting to live lives that honor you and bring you glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen.